Welcome back to episode 33 of the Meet Kevin Report. A lot to talk about today, including the release of the PCE, which is more inflationary data from January, which has and has been suffering from massive, massive seasonal adjustments. But before we do, let's take a listen in to something that is going live right now, and that is Loretta Mester. She is one of the 50 BP folks over at the Fed. Let's see what she has to say economy and bring it down inflation? Well, we always like to align, you know, with where the markets are. and We don't want to surprise the markets. So the alignment, yes. I think, is, is closer than it was before. But, you know, we're going to set policy to do what we have to do to get back to price stability. So we've been raising interest rates. We've seen some of that working through the economy. We have seen some pressure off the inflation, but inflation remains too high. And as, as you know, coming out of the the meeting last time and the minutes showed earlier this week that we we're going to have to do a little more to get that back to price stability of 2%. So I said yesterday there's only one species of Fed official now, a greater or lesser hawk. Where do you put yourself in that, if at all? Um, are you... Sorry about the audio glitch. It's fixed. Average or median uh, Fed funds uh, forecast for among Fed officials of five and an eighth, or are you higher or lower than that? Yeah. So as I always said to you, I'd like to be known as an owl, not a hawk or a dove. But in for any its, case... For, for, for <laughs> his wisdom. Or right, wisdom. exactly, but it's not up to me to call right. myself that. Um, you know, I see a little more impetus in the inflation measures than my colleagues did, at least in December when we put out the last SEP readings, the summary of economic projections. So I had my funds rate a little bit above the median. Um, in that projection, and I haven't really seen much change in my outlook for the economy since since that time. So I see in, uh, that we're going to have to bring interest rates above five percent, and we'll we'll figure out how much above. That's going to depend on how the economy evolves over time. But I do think we need to be somewhat above five percent and hold there for for a time in order to get inflation on that sustainable downward path to two percent. But it's maybe significant what you're saying is you haven't seen anything in the interim that causes you to change where your dot was in December? No, I think I'm where I was because remember, I saw a little bit stronger, more in inflation impetus than the median did. And I also think that um, the, uh, the, the labor markets, I'm not really seeing a trade-off between the hot labor market and inflation. I'm really focused on inflation. And what we learned over the last expansion, the pre-pandemic expansion, is that you know, the unemployment rate can be very low without necessarily spurring inflation. So I'm really focused on the inflation numbers. And I don't yeah. see that we have to have this trade-off necessarily between labor and uh, price stability. In so fact, I would Phillips say curve. I'm greedy. I want to have healthy labor markets and a return to price. My, my colleague Joe Kern wants to ask you a question, but I want to just get one more before, before we get to him. Um, the real question I want to ask you is what the heck's going on with the economy? We, we were supposed to be an economy that was... <laughs> It, right now, either in recession or on the way to recession, we printed a half million jobs for January. Um, we had retail sales go through the roof. Is this all seasonal adjustment? Is this economy weakening or is it ignoring Great. the Fed when it comes to Great higher question. rates? No, I don't think it's ignoring. I mean, we've <clears throat> seen some of the impact of higher rates. Certainly, if you look at the housing market, right, that's definitely yeah. clearly slowing. Right. Manufacturing slowed a bit. Now we have some impetus that suggests that maybe it's not slowing as fast as we thought. So, you know, if you had to sort of characterize what's happened is coming into this year, there's probably a little bit more underlying strength than a lot of forecasters thought. Um, but there's also some movement, good movement on the, the inflation measures. They are coming down. It's just that the level of inflation is still too high, which is why coming out of our last FOMC meeting, the broad, you know, consensus was among all the participants was that we're going to have to do more, which is why 
you know, the statement said ongoing increases. Joe? I'm just, uh, thanks, Steve. Uh, President Messer, I'm just trying to get uh, some insight into the idea of, of maybe 50 basis points and why it might have made sense. Why It ain't happening. Theoretically, it, it could still make sense. Like, I think if, if you know where you're going or are pretty sure of it and you need to get there, you might as well get there is the argument. I'm wondering whether uh, maybe everybody else is, is or some people are more cautious is because we, it's, there's still data dependency. Is it possible that something happens more quickly in terms of, of a weakness in some area. So the, is there a reason to just do 25? Because if you need to do 50 you might as, and go higher than that, you might as well do it, unless you're leaving it an opening for data to come in that shows that you didn't really need to go that high. Is that why you don't go 50? Yeah, so Joe, it's a good question about tactics, about where, how, you know, to get to where we need to get to. You know, I, I'm on the record saying that at the last meeting, I saw a good economic case for doing 50 because my view of the outlook hadn't changed, and I do believe we're going to have to move our policy rate above 5%, and a 50 at the last meeting would have brought the top of our target range to 5%. But, you know, other people on the committee had different views, and so that's what the value of having people sit around the table is we come up with sort of a consensus view. Now, at every meeting, right, we go, do that same kind of analysis. We look at where the economy is. We look at the incoming data. We project out where we think the economy is going, understanding that the economy can evolve in different ways than expected. And then we set our best policy path. But I think the message coming out of the meeting was we've got to keep going a little bit more. We've come a long way. We brought the funds rate up quite a bit. But we still have a little more work to do in order to ensure that we get back to price stability and so making sure that we're commit, making sure we're committed and people understand our commitment is what's going to be able to get us back to price stability. Do you support a 50 at the next meeting? I don't go. I don't prejudge. Right. I go into the meetings and I'm going to look at the data and we're going to have a new set of forecasts and that's going to help guide where we need to get to. But that's a tactical decision that we make at the meeting. Right. It's got to be based on where we're going how much the economy is slowing in terms of getting demand back in line with supply. And of course, the Pump supply it. chain issues are also improving. So there's two things going on. Demand is moderating. And if you talk to our business contacts and our labor market contacts in my district, and I would submit in a lot of the districts, right, they are, businesses are saying that things are moderating. So I know Pump, a lot of Pump. people think that, well, the data's lag and you're only looking at the past. We have a lot of contacts. Um, across the districts that we talk to all the time, and that's very important because that's forward-looking. They're telling us what they're planning to do. Andrew has a question for you. President Messer, can you succeed um, at reducing inflation without raising unemployment? And on the unemployment front, what do you think a politically palatable unemployment rate is? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this is an interesting labor market, to say the least. It's, it's shown a lot of strength. There are structural things going on in the labor market as well as cyclical things. So I do believe that we can get demand down um, without seeing the same kind of uh, rise in unemployment that in, in, in past slowdowns we've seen. And in fact, when you talk to businesses, a lot of them said it's been so painful over the last couple of years and they've spent so much effort to hire people that they're going to do everything they can, even though they're anticipating some slowdown in demand for their output. They're going to do everything they can to keep people on staff so they, after we get beyond this yep. slowdown and get back you know, on the path to price stability, that they'll have the staff they need. And in fact, some of our 
um, firms in our district are still hiring because they're anticipating that if, if we do have a slowdown, it'll be mild and then we're going to go back um, to, a, to a really healthy economy. So I do think that in this labor market, we can get back, we can have both. We can have healthy labor markets and we can get back to price stability. But I also think it's really important to know that if we want to sustain healthy labor markets over time, we've got to get back to price stability. So that's why I'm very focused on that aspect, right? We've got to get inflation down. We have to get back to our 2% goal in a timely way. And that's why I'm focused on that right now. The problem, President Mester, is history is not really on your side. You don't have, you as I mean the Federal Reserve, not you personally, <laughs> doesn't have a terrific track record of bringing down inflation without a recession. And well, this is the other side of Andrew's question, which is, do you think a recession is likely? Can you avoid a recession and still get back to your 2% target? So my forecast is that growth will slow this year and be well below trend. Um, I still hold to that forecast. So when you're that low, you know, it doesn't take much of a, some kind of shock that you're not anticipating, which is the nature of a shock. You don't anticipate them. That can push you into negative growth for a time. But, you know, when you talk to your business contacts, you know, they're all sort of preparing for that kind of recession. But when you talk to, to one, they say it's going to be mild. So, again, I, I, I think we can get back to price stability. What's different now is our commitment to getting back to 2% and all the things we've learned over time about how important it is to have that commitment, to communicate it, to be very clear about where we're going, right, as clear as we can without being prescient. We're not prescient, right? right? but to be very clear, and that's what's going to get us back to 2%. There was a very important concept embedded in Joe's question to you, which is one about lags. We just had Jim Bullard on from St. Louis. He said, this is 2023, there are no lags anymore. I'm overstating <laughs> what he's saying. Do you think there are lags that are yet to hit this economy that will, I guess, offset the need for you to go quite so high? So there are two things. One is, we have been very much different this time in terms of communicating where we're going. So what you saw, right, when, well before we made that first rate increase back last year, at the beginning of last year, right, markets had already priced in some of that because we were communicating in advance. That doesn't detract from the fact that it does take time for those rate increases to go through the economy. So the financial markets reacted, but it still takes time to get through. And we saw that in the housing market. They, it didn't react immediately. It took, even in the housing market, which is very interest rate sensitive, it took some time. Those lags are still there. So I do believe that, you know, we're going to start seeing, you know, more of what we've done in the past affect the economy. But nonetheless, if you just look at what's going on in the economy now, the strength, the fact that inflation still remains high, the fact that, you know, parts of inflation are coming down, but other parts, including the important service sector, ex-shelter, have not moved. We're going to have to do some more. But we are making mm -hmm. progress on that path. Joe? Uh, yeah, President Messer, if, if energy prices, um, if something happens there, I don't know, we're using the SPR, uh, you know, take your pick on, on what could cause a spike there. If it, it, and I know you could do core, maybe, to try to factor that out, but then it seems like it filters through to everything else. If, if that's why inflation stays stubbornly high, would you continue to work on slowing the overall economy when really you're not, that's not really why we have the inflation? You can't really address the, the energy supply problem. So it just seems like that'd be a bad reason to, to go much higher than you need to go in terms of tightening for something you can't really control. So, Joe, it really depends on what's causing that 
you know, the energy prices to rise. If, it, if it's because demand is still well outpacing supply, then we're going to have to think about what that means in terms of the path of inflation. If it's a supply shock, which is typical, what you, what you're, I think what you're talking, alluding to, then, right, you're exactly right. We have to look at what's the underlying inflation rate. What are inflation expectations doing, which are all important, anchoring them, keeping them at 2% over the yeah. long run. So long run inflation expectations are still reasonably well anchored. And so we'll have to do that judgment. But you're exactly right. This is a risk management kind of uh, a process that we have to go through. So it really depends on the source of that rise in interest rate. Uh, rise in oil. We're going to have to go real quickly, but we've been giving every Fed official talking to a hard time about the following. You guys had it wrong when it came to the inflation and policy. Inflation surged up and the Fed was on the wrong side of that trade. Why should we have confidence now you have this right this time? <laughs> well, you know, we're just like every other economist trying to do the best forecasting job wrong. we can. I think we reacted well in terms of once we agreed that this inflation impetus was there, it wasn't going to dissipate quickly, that we were really going to take action. We did that. And we are very committed to getting back to price stability okay. in a timely way. All right. President Mester, thanks for joining us. And okay, listen to this. Look, I, I just, I'll talk about what she just said in a moment, but this was scary. Okay, you ready for this? Look at this. I've never seen this before. So obviously the Fed officials, they regularly bring up inflation expectations. And I've never seen this before. This just, this is the first time I've actually seen this on this particular chart. And it's not just this chart, it's also when I zoom out even more. But let me explain this to you because it's kind of scary. Uh, and then we'll talk about what Mester just said. But, it, it, and it's scary because of how uncertain, or how much uncertainty it creates. All right, so what I want you to think of first is this blue line right here are inflation expectations. This white line are financial conditions. So the higher the white line goes, the tighter things are. Think about it as like 10-year treasury yields. Interest rates are more expensive. The market is crappier, right? So things, things are tougher for businesses and expansion when the white line is up. Uh, and when the blue line is down, it suggests disinflation or deflation even, right? So generally what you see is as financial conditions tighten, the market's expectations of inflation go down. It was true over here in 18. It was true in the pandemic. It's pretty much always true. In fact, let me show you pretty much always true by zooming all the way out to when this financial, uh, this, this sort of tightness chart started or, or the break-evens chart started over here in the dot-com bubble. You can kind of see the inflation expectations go up over here on the left when we see financial conditions come down. In Great Recession, you see financial conditions up and you see break-evens down, okay? All right, so we got that. Now, what is happening that I haven't seen before and this is a little odd because it's it's sort of breaking the tradition of what we usually see. And we know it's something the Federal Reserve really pays attention to. Okay, ready for this? Look at this chart. Now look on the far right side. Look at this. This is so weird. Financial conditions are tightening at the same time as break-evens are moving up. That's bizarre. Usually break-evens come down as financial conditions loosen. In fact, you can kind of see this loosening over here and we loosen expectations over here. We uh, had this, this uh, um, uh, but, but I, mean, I, don't, I can't say we have much of a correlation between some of these. So there's a lot of, I guess maybe the way to look at this, because as I'm looking at this a little bit more, the way to look at this is it's super 
odd and volatile right now relative to what we've seen in the past, right? Generally, again, in the longer term, as these conditions fall, break-evens uh, rise. As the conditions rise, break-evens fall. But right now, we're having this sort of bizarre moment where yields are going up, expectations for the market tightening or getting higher, but inflation expectations are actually also rising. So it's kind of bizarre because it somewhat, the, the only implication I could pull out of this is that the market is suggesting we need even tighter financial conditions to actually keep this downtrend moving on the break-evens. Now, that somewhat aligns with what Loretta Mester says, which, look, we've got to get above 5.1%. And what did she really tell us? Well, one of the big things that she reiterated was something that we've heard about in the FOMC minutes, which is that, look, the housing market is slowing down and manufacturing is slowing down slightly, but not as much as we'd like. Notice that kind of combination there. Manufacturing is slowing, but not as much as we'd like or expect. Housing is slowing. And then kind of like, yay, that's what they want, right? They're trying to engineer a housing slowdown because the housing slowdown is exactly what reduces demand and spending. And that brings inflation down. She also is one of the first folks here. She was supposed to be the, basically the big bear who's going, oh, 50 basis points, 50 basis points. Today, she's like, ah, you know, I said 50 last time, but I don't necessarily have to say 50 this time. I just wanted to say 50 so we get closer to the high-end rate of 5%. Well, I mean, if they do 25 basis points in the next meeting, they'll have the high-end rate. Uh, uh, the, because remember, it's a range. When they raise rates, they give us a range. So if we're at 4.5 to 4.75 now, well, if we raise another 25 BP, what do we get? 4.75 and 5, <laughs> right? So you can achieve what she wanted to achieve last time, this time with the 25 BP hike. That just reiterates what I've been saying over the last few days, uh, and, and quite frankly for a while, that I think it would be ridiculous for the Federal Reserve to go 50 now, even though that's probably what they should do. They'd be shooting themselves in the foot in terms of credibility for what they have left anyway. But let's put some of that aside. What else uh, uh, did she mention that was quite odd, uh, or maybe should I say different, for Fed folks? Well, she talked about basically without using the words, the Phillips curve being broken. Now that's really interesting because generally in order to bring inflation down, you have to force unemployment, especially if there's a wage price spiral. Wage price spiral, you have to kill the economy, force employment, bring things back to normal. 1980s all over again, Paul Volcker, right? Okay, fine. So since then, uh, and even prior to that, traditional Keynesian thought uh, and, and via even the, the Phillips curve, which you know was created in the 90s, well after uh, John Maynard Keynes and his economic theories. But anyway, this Phillips curve was, was this idea that, hey, look, in, in history, we always have to force unemployment uh, to, to bring inflation down. And she made the argument here that, no, we don't think so. We think there are things happening in the labor force that make, quote unquote, this time different because people aren't laying people off because they went through years of struggling to find people. So maybe if everybody's just sort of patient and walks through whatever this is, whether it's below trend economic growth or a shallow recession, maybe as long as we can get through the pain of, of you know, last year and this year, and we suffer with our flat earnings or our negative EPS for a year or two, and, and, and then we, we basically, as American Express says, spend through the recession and use the savings we built up to sort of survive and get to the other side as businesses and individuals, well, then maybe things just won't actually be that bad, and we don't actually have to force unemployment up for inflation to come down. 
That's the argument she just made. I mean, if you go back and, and just rewind and listen to it, she was pretty clear that we don't need to break unemployment. The unemployment rate can be very low without spurring unemployment. That stands in complete contrast to what the Federal Reserve basically has been teaching for, for decades, which is this idea that the Phillips curve says if inflation is low, uh, the unemployment rate, uh, or to get the inflation, to get inflation down, the unemployment rate must go up because then in other words, what labor earners have less pricing power. And if labor earners have less pricing power, they bring inflation down because this, you basically have the opposite of a wage price spiral, right? Labor gets cheaper as it competes for dollars and that enables prices to come down uh, as company margins can rise in excess maybe of even their, their labor cost savings. Uh, and so, so their need to raise prices evaporates and then pricing uh, uh, comes down, top line pricing comes down. So that's where sometimes pricing power gets a little bit tricky because we generally think of pricing power as, oh, they can raise prices. Well, look, Tyson Foods might be able to raise prices, but if their margin, you know, if they raise prices 10% and their margins are, are compressing 20%, well, they're losing more money, right? Even with higher prices. So really like ideally for, for a company, uh, you can actually reduce prices and your costs go down even more because now you could be more competitive against your competitors. Uh, you could be more competitive, sell more of your product, and boom, you win, <laughs> right? Like you, you end up making more money at lower prices. That's the ideal scenario. So I think it's interesting. Uh, my uh, sort of my big takeaways uh, from what Loretta Mester said were a. Inflation expectations are still anchored, which I agree with her, but they're starting to do something weird. Uh, it might just be short-term volatility and that the market is now expecting that we have to tighten financial conditions even more. But sure, I suppose if you look out and, and zoom out more, sure, they look anchored, but I, I, you know, I, I don't like this recent rise we've had in inflation expectations. I think they're going to pay attention to that. And if we have to bring financial conditions back up to these levels, well, that's going to mean 10-year treasury yield at 4.5% and real estate gets hurt even more, right? Uh, her taking this strong stance that the Phillips curve is broken, we don't actually have to force unemployment because people are hoarding employees, also quite interesting. And her reiteration once again that the housing market essentially has to keep coming down, which is what we've heard Jerome Powell say at the beginning of last year, the middle of last year, and reiterate in the minutes, really to me suggests the Fed wants 10-year treasuries up, they want real estate down. That's the goal of the Fed, and they don't really care what happens in the stock market in the short term. We'll see, but that seems to be what uh, uh, what Loretta Mester suggests. And it's also interesting that she basically just walked back this idea that she's 50, 50, 50. She made it clear, hey, like, I was 50 to get the upper end to 5%. Well, guess what? In the next meeting, you can get the upper end to 5% with a 25 BPI, <laughs> right? After all, 25 plus 25 is 50. So I have to say, if she's a hawk and she's listening to her contacts as leading indicators, if she's considered a hawk, this was bullish. And I'm not, I don't think I'm trying to be like, you know, put the bias on or whatever. And I want it to be bullish. Like if this was hawkish, I, I tell you, you know, uh, you know, this, if she's a hawk, that was bullish. You know, whether that's the leading indicators they're seeing or the leading contact stuff, there, whatever, right? You know, their teal books and their economic reports from their industry contacts. Whatever you say, that was not a bearish Fed talk. And she was supposed to be one of the bears that was driving the stock market down over the last few weeks here over this fear. Now, folks, we've got to talk about PCE. The personal consumption expenditures numbers come out in about 20 seconds. Prepare for the expectations. PCE month over month is expected to be 0.5 by some estimates 0.6. Year over year 5.0. Core month over month 0.4. Year over year core 
4.3, and the numbers will be coming out within the next 10 seconds. This is gonna move the stock market today. Let's see what happens. Da -da 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 -da. It, it's been like 10 seconds and it's still not out. <laughs> Waiting. Uh, usually they're pretty on time. Is out. Personal income comes in at an actual 0.6 versus the survey of 1.0. Personal spending, however, comes in at 1.8 versus 1.4. So more personal spending, but less personal income. Here we go, PCE numbers in, month over month, slightly hot at that 0.6, although some estimates did hit that. Year over year comes in hot, 5.4 versus 5.0. This is just like the January CPI report all over again. Core, uh, that's not good. Core comes in at 0.6. That's 7.2% annualized, that's terrible. The prior read was 0.3. And the last survey, and the survey was 0.4. That's a nice beat uh, in, in a negative way. Uh, core year over year comes in hot at 4.7. Okay, now we got the revisions. Year over year core of the last reporting period. So December was revised up from 4.4 to 4.6. Core deflator month over month revised up from 0.3 to 0.4 for last month. Uh, year over year revised up from 5% to 5.3%. PCE month over month for the last report revised up from 0.1 to 0.2%. So what do you have? Well, you literally have people showing now, these new reports showing less income, more spending, and higher inflation uh, than, than anticipated by survey and certainly higher than what we had last month. So much in line with the CPI report, it's not good. <laughs> it's, it's all hotter. It's all hotter than expected. Uh, and uh, no surprise, but at least at this point, the market is taking a little poopsie doopsies. Now, I, I kind of, I have to, I just put my own little spin on this for a moment while we pull up the PCE report and we go through some of the details here. Personally, I'd just like to say that I feel like this is redundant. I feel like this is just a redundancy to what we saw in the CPI report. But for some reason, we have multiple of these reports, like PPI reports and PCE reports. I get it. So it's no surprise to some degree that this one's coming in hot because we had the heads up that it was going to come in hot by the last, again, the beats on PPI, the beats on retail sales, the beats on uh, CPI. Okay, now that aside, let's see what Wall Street is saying about it. Obviously, it's an algorithmic easy sell trade. It'll be really interesting once the humans actually start reacting to this data if we end up buying this dip. That will be very interesting because I want you to know right now, it's algos firing off. It's, it's a very simple formula. If expectations or, or the results come in higher than expectations, sell. If they come in lower than expectations, buy. Very, very simple algorithm you could program probably yourself as well. So not too terribly much of a surprise, uh, again, that this data is hot, but hey, whatever. 61 sur uh, economists of, uh, okay, here we go. Only six of the 61 economists surveyed by Bloomberg forecast a personal spending gain of 1.8% or higher. Another hot January report, no question. Yep, agree with that. PCE core accelerated to 4.7% in January above all estimates, and the month-on-month -month gain matched the high forecast. Inflation again coming in hotter than expected. Okay, we've talked about some of the headline numbers here. Let's go to the actual release as well and see what they've got uh, here. So here's the actual report. Uh, so what do we have here? We've got uh, personal income, 
for January, there we go, 0.6, personal disposable income, 2.0% on current dollars, expenditures, 1.8. So again, this is where you could see we're spending more than we're making right now. And this kind of reiterates what we're seeing with the credit card data, right? The credit card data suggesting people are spending more than they're making. And this is where there's a lot of, uh, I, I like to say clickbait because I like to say it's really, it's kind of just like basic, but like there are a lot of folks going, oh, but Kevin, the personal savings rate has plummeted. Yeah, no shit. Like we're, we're probably going through some degree of a recession. So people go into their, their savings that they have and they spend money to get through the recession. Businesses do that and people do that. No, duh, people's incomes go down in a recessionary environment when stocks go down and when, you know, people are getting laid off, duh. So showing the chart of the personal savings rate going down is just, it's redundant. It's like childish. It's, it's, it's simple. What we need to pay attention to is how much excess savings people have. And, and most people still have four to five times as much money as they had before the pandemic. So, so we, we have a long runway of still being able to spend through this. I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's actually one of the reasons we're seeing some of these inflationary numbers come in hot, obviously combined with the fact that you've got crazy seasonal adjustments that happen in January. Uh, so, so February is going to be even more important because January is like seasonal adjustment month, but whatever. Obviously, this is a hot report. Obviously, that's not good. Obviously, this is not the trend that we want. Uh, and, and obviously, that's why the stock market is taking a little poopsie-doopsy immediately after the report. However, I want to see how the day evolves because I'll tell you, one of the most important things that you're going to get as an investor in the stocks today is if the stock market ends up green today, that's a sign, in my opinion, that institutions realize we're not going to get Paul Volckerd and any dip is starting to turn into a buy the dip opportunity. Now, I'm not saying this dip is a buy the dip opportunity. I'm just wanting you to observe the market today. And if for some crazy reason, we somehow rebound from negative one and a half percent on the QQQ to positive at the end of the day, it's a sign that institutions are realizing, oh damn, we've been off sides for too long. It's time to start allocating more cash to these levels. Grab these before they're gone in February when maybe those seasonal adjustments are gone. I'm not thinking it's all in time because obviously if we get a hot Feb, you know, you're gonna be like, oh, why did I buy, <laughs> right? Hot Feb would be like worst case scenario because then you're reiterating the January trend and the argument that January is just a seasonal adjustment disaster uh, or maybe January is hot because January was a lot warmer than December and people are buying spring clothes in, in January, that goes away instantly. Look, I don't know. I mean, if you follow me Insta on Instagram, it's basically at this point like following my OnlyFans. Okay, I don't have an OnlyFans. But on Monday, I was skiing without my shirt on because it was hot. It was, it, I mean, it's like February in Lake Tahoe and I'm like, I'm sweating my butt off over here. And, and even after I get, you know, splashed with snow, uh, I'm still hot. It, it, it's weird. It's like, um, I, it's just a, it, it's, it's a weirdly warm winter. I, I know obviously that's just an anecdote, but that is also what we're seeing in the data, right? So that motivates you to buy different clothing, right? And, and then leads to more retail spending and people have more. Anyway, okay, so so take that as you'd like, but obviously pre-market here, and maybe at the beginning, market open, whatever, we get some red. If we continue to close red, okay, then this is a legitimate concern. If we can, if we actually rebound like we did yesterday off of this, because yesterday was insane. I mean, yesterday was just like straight down, and then just like straight back up to, to close higher, basically, than where we started the day. Insane. But anyway, what do we have here? Increase in personal dollar income in January was led by compensation, reflecting private wages and salaries. 
Obviously, these are just the lagging uh, uh, embers of inflation. No surprise. Uh, government social benefits decreased in January, reflecting a decrease in other benefits. Fine. One-time refundable tax credits, Social Security, COLA adjustment. Oh, that's another thing to remember, too, is you have, uh, you have uh, the COLA adjustment that took effect in January. So people's incomes actually rose thanks to getting more Social Security money starting in January. Remember when they announced the COLA adjustments and like, when do they do it? Like September, August or something like that. They're like, oh yeah, you know, 8.7% bump. People were like, oh great, inflation is wonderful. My Social Security is going up almost 10%, <laughs> you know? Uh, obviously inflation's not great, but, but anyway, uh, that, that could be what we're seeing some of in January as well. Cola, cost of living adjustment, not Coke, okay? <laughs> anyway, uh, so what do we have here? Three $12.5 billion increase PCE reflected spending on $162 billion in spending for goods, $150 for spending for services. Within goods, the increase was widespread, led by motor vehicles and parts, as well as other non-durables. Durables are like cars, washing machines, dishwashers, and stuff. With services, the largest contributor for the, for the increase was spending for food services. That's interesting because food services is actually part of core, but food is not part of core. See what I'm saying? So it's like, even if food increases, and then you're like, oh, well, I want to look at core, which takes out food and energy, you still have food services that are affected by food prices. And so if food service prices go up because they raise menu prices, that's an increase in, in basically food services. And it's related to food going up, even though it's supposed to be part of core, which is excluding food and energy. It's the same thing as saying like, you know, oh, uh, you know, my delivery fee for my new gym is $100 more expensive because gas is high but my gym shows up as more expensive on my CPI report, even though the core CPI says, here's your gym without the uh, energy costs, right? So, so you can see how in, in, in like food and energy, which is very volatile, still continues to flow through even in core. But anyway, personal outlays increase, personal savings uh, decreased uh, from prices from the prior month, blah, blah, blah. Okay, real, okay, let's, uh, let's see here. Let's look at some of the other data or uh, related materials that we have here. Full releases and tables. Yes, this is what I want. Let me get this up. Uh, in the meantime, let me quickly see what Wall Street is saying. Uh, PCE reflected an increase in both goods and services. Uh, spending Food led the way. Yeah, see, they're picking up. Wall Street's picking up on this as well. Hey, they just picked up on that 30 seconds ago. Maybe, maybe they're watching us right now. Hey, fine with me. Hey, if you're watching me, hi. <laughs> anyway, so uh, there was really no disagreement across the raft of indicators in January. Strong for the economy, jobs, consumption, inflation. Will this be sustained? That's the big question right now. A lot of strategists right now talking about, will is this a, a re-accelerating of inflation? Is this the second wave that everybody's been fearing? That's maybe why the stock market is falling and then sort of selling off a little bit right now. Yeah, that, that is a very fair question. That's why January, or uh, well, the, the report that comes out next month for February would be so important. Okay, is there anything else interesting in some of this data? I do think that food services item was very, very interesting. Uh, and, and quite important. No, not really. I mean, we'll get some t tables here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. This actually will be really, really interesting. So let's go to, I want percentages. Please give me percent changes because now we can see categorically what's happening. <coughs> oh, dear. <coughs> I'm dying. <laughs> here we go. Percent change from preceding month. Uh, this is so bad. I'm like choking and dying. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, here we go. Wages and salaries. Oh, good Lord. 
0.9% uh, seasonally adjusted monthly rates. That's absolutely horrible. 0.9, good Lord. You realize how high a 0.9 read is? Oh my goodness gracious. It was 0.4 in November and December. 0.9? I mean, this is going to make people scared of a wage price spiral. That's 10.8% annualized. But again, some of that has to do with like cola going up. But damn, 0.9, that's not, that's bad. Uh, personal interest income. Wow, with rates this high, it basically you're sitting at 0.1% of an increase. That's nothing. Personal dividend income. Boy, that's a volatile category right there. Uh, rental income of persons with capital consumption adjustment. I don't even know what that is. Uh, I'll, I, we can figure that out. So this is, yeah, this is percent change from prior month. Some of these numbers are just nutty. What is this? Uh, personal contributions from government social insurance. Yeah, there you go. Look at that. 1.5%. I mean, that's a massive boost. That's the COLA adjustment taking effect. Uh, okay, can we get a little, can we get percentages on like specific goods? Mm, maybe. Food really popped off over here. Percent change. This is from a year ago, one month, but a year ago. This is from one, okay, yeah, I mean, that's fine. 11.1%. That's sort of what we've been expecting for food. Ah, this table, not too terribly insightful. But um, let me see a little bit more of what Wall Street is saying, and then let's try to... Fed swaps, okay, yeah, here we go. Fed swaps are now fully pricing in rate increases in March, May, June. Yeah, we've kind of been expecting that already, though. Three more 50 basis point hikes, right? That brings us to five and a quarter percent. So from 4.5% to 4.75% uh, in, in the next meeting, to five in the next, and then five and a quarter in the next. Yeah, that, that kind of is what we've been expecting. So uh, the question now is, is the terminal rate moving up? It probably will on this. The terminal rate was before this report at a high of 3.7 or 3.3, what am I saying? 5.37 was the terminal rate before this. And okay, it's moving up a little bit. There's now this expectation that potentially there's a rising risk for a 50 BP move in the next meeting. I disagree with that. I think if anything, they would just add a 25 BP or the market will, will start pricing in a 25 BP for uh, uh, July if it needed to. But I don't really, honestly, like bottom line on all of this, I don't think this really changes anything because again, it's just like, it's literally like replaying the nightmare of, uh, uh, of, of a personal consumption or uh, PPI, retail sales and CPI for January. It's literally like we're playing the same movie over and over again for January. Like, we get it. The January numbers are hot. We get it. Like, how many more times are we going to play the same movie over and over again? It's like watching the Titanic on repeat and being sad that people are dying. It's literally what these reports are. It's over and over and over again for January. It's the same crap. We get it. January was hot. I know. It was hot for winter as well. Next month's data is going to be very important. We want to break this trend because the last thing we want is all of these reports next month to be confirming this trend. That's what matters at this point. I don't think this changes anything in terms of the Fed going for 25 BP next meeting. I don't think there's any way they go for 50. Uh, I, I'll, I, I'll, you know, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll make a, we'll have to make some kind of bet on that because I feel so confident on that. But uh, sure, you know, like if this stuff is a trend, it's bad. If it's not a trend, it's a buy the dip opportunity, which I still believe that we want to pay attention to what the market does today. Because even if it's super red at open, 
if it recovers towards the end of the day, the, the institutions, and they can be wrong too. Institutions are wrong all the time. Institutions could be yelling at you going, this is the positive opportunity. Especially if that boost happens towards the end of the day. Remember that most ETFs do their transacting at the end of the day. So if you get, uh, well, that could also be representative of some e uh, um, retail inflow since rep ETFs are an institution, but they get both retail and institutional investments, right? But often if you see big inflows at the end of the day or big kind of moves up or down at the end of the day, it's usually institutions pulling the trigger. So they come up with sort of their strategy uh, for, for the opening bell and then the closing bell. So you usually get the most volume at those times because of the institutional strategies going up. Kind of interesting. Kind of fascinating. Play the buy the dip video. Well, let's see what happens throughout the day. <laughs> see, but remember, you know, like Alex Kerr here says, disinflation is transitory. Poor J-Pow. This is just a reiteration of the same crap from January, right? Like this is, this is not a trend. Uh, QT. Yeah, look, uh, Steve's talking about QT. You know, uh, yes, uh, the Federal Reserve is quantitatively tightening right now. It's similar to what we saw in 2018 and 19 uh, in terms of the runoff, uh, the contraction of the money supply. The contraction of the money supply from an Austrian economics point of view could actually be providing us all of the evidence we need to suggest that inflation will end up being transitory. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part, what nobody really knows how quantitative tightening is really going to affect the broader market. Nobody really knows. And I think that's why the Fed is going as slow as they are on that. They don't want to break anything. So we'll see. It'll be really interesting. Uh, but yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch the institutional reaction today. Watch how the market closes today. It, obviously, 10-year Treasury yields still holding on to that 3.94. We saw a pump when, uh, in real estate when Treasury yields fell to 3.3% because people were under the impression that this is it, this is the bottom. I'm like, <laughs> not so fast. We'll see. Bottom's not in yet uh, for real estate, in my opinion. So, you know, I, I don't ever want to come across as like, I'm only a bull. Like, I'm definitely bearish on certain parts of this economy. But anyway, uh, we'll see what the next data sets show. For, but in terms of PCE, and, and I, am I really like, Oh my gosh, this changes everything? No. This is just like, again, it's Titanic all over again. Like, I, I saw this movie. I saw this movie on the jobs report. I saw this on the PPI report. I saw this on the CPI report. Why am I shocked that PCE came in hot? It's like the last indicator of the month. It's boring. It's like, thank you. Thank you for playing this for me again. Now, start paying me for watching the same movie over and over again. <laughs> all right. Uh, now we got some more stuff to talk about. Like, Tesla. <laughs> we always got to have something to talk about with Tesla. Uh, actually, there's another Morgan Stanley report out, which I think is pretty fascinating. Along with uh, Steve's favorite, commodities plummeting. We got to talk about that. So let's let's do exactly that. Stand by. What do we got? Well, we've got some news for Tesla. Not only do we need to talk Investor Day, Lithium, a shocker, but we got to talk about rumors around that small car. But first, let's see what Morgan Stanley has to say with their Tesla Investor Day preview. Here's how EVs will be made, dot, dot, dot. Yes, that's literally the headline of the Investor Day uh, presentation preview here from Morgan Stanley. And I have to say, the dot, dot, dot is actually a really brilliant placement of a dot, dot, dot. Now, you might be thinking, Kevin, what do you mean? Like, it's just an ellipse. It's not that big of a deal. Why would the dot, dot, dot matter? Well, the dot, dot, dot actually matters a lot. I'll show you why in just a moment. 
First, remember what Brett Whitten said with extreme confidence that Tesla was probably going to announce a new vehicle on Investor Day? That kind of shook me to the core a little bit. Brett Whitten's obviously from ARK Invest, and I'm like, really? It, I, I mean, I, I, I thought the next Master Plan 3, the MP3, uh, who remembers playing MP3s on like a Walkman back in the day? Anyway, uh, Master Plan 3, MP3, it, you know, I thought it was going to all be all about scale, right? Copy and pasting Gigafactories, which it may be, but I didn't think they were actually going to announce a new car. Brett Whitten from ARK Invest thinks they are going to. But now I'm talking about this dot, 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 and why am I doing that? Is it because I have a flash sale going on built around Master Plan 3's reveal for March 1st when the mass and the flash sale's already begun, but it'll expire uh, on, on March 1st? <laughs> well, maybe. Or it has to do with this dot, dot, dot right here. Look at what Elon Musk says. Elon Musk says... Kevin's courses are amazing and you should join the private... Oh, so I'm reading a different screen. Uh, okay, EV1 to T0 to Tesla Roadster, the original, the OG Tesla Roadster, to model S, 3, X, and Y, to semi-truck, to cyber-truck, space, dot, dot, dot. Elon Musk himself teasing the dot, 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 which is in reply to Tesla... Uh, talking about being the largest manufacturing employer and, uh, uh, you know, starting as a long shot startup founded 20 years ago in San Carlos. And so this tease right here is really teasing something missing, something to come. And it's also fascinating because that's what Brett at ARK Invest suggests. And it's also what at least this title is toying with from Morgan Stanley. So what does Morgan Stanley say? Well, first of all, they have uh, an overweight rating for the stock, so they're bullish. They have a price target of $220 for the stock. And let's just read what they say. With investors, a Tesla's investor day just one week uh, away from now, investors are focused on what can change the narrative to continue the stock's recent rally. We look for Tesla to unveil a suite of technologies required for the mass adoption of EVs at far lower price points, a critical component of Master Plan 3. Now, this is where one of the things that we've talked about was this idea that if Tesla can reduce their margins by 50% or reduce their cost of goods sold by 50% on a vehicle, they could reduce the cost of their vehicle, their headline price of a vehicle, by potentially 35 to 40%, which is phenomenal. Now, some people challenged me on the math on that because, they, 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 in my opinion, they were doing it wrong. They're trying to take like the to go like, well, 50% cost less. Anyway, let's, let's just do the math together really quickly, and then you, then you can see uh, if this seems logical to you. So a Model 3 right now, uh, sells for, if we pick a brand new Model 3 right now, the least expensive Tesla vehicle, sells for, here it is on screen, $42,990. But you don't want to, uh, uh, oh, I didn't get to really show that. You don't want to take 50% of a cost reduction off of this number because that's actually not the number. You've got to pull the margins, right? So if the cost of the vehicle is $42,990, and now what we're going to do is we're going to minus the margin. Let's go ahead and take off 20% as margin today, as things are still potentially relatively expensive today. So if we take off 20% right now, the COGS, costs of goods sold for this vehicle, are 34392. If we can take 50% off of that, then what we're really doing is taking off minus 17196, right? So now we're saying 34392 minus 17196, which should just be half, right? What we're doing with that 
is we're saying the car now costs 17196. So that's that means the new cogs equals 17196. Well, if Tesla is trying to achieve a 25% margin, then that actually represents 75%. So we can just divide that number by 75%. And if we divide that number by 75%, we get to a new vehicle price of $22,928. Look at that. There's your $25,000 vehicle if they can reduce their costs of goods sold by 50%. And they want a 25% uh, uh, cost uh, or profit margin. If we change this to 70%, which would be a 30% profit margin, that is the long run goal, right? 30% profit margin. Well, now all of a sudden the new vehicle price would actually be, watch this, it's eerie, $24,564. There's your $25,000 vehicle. So if they can reveal how to get their costs down 50%, the $25,000 vehicle is basically in the bag. Wild. Uh, so as we wrote about in its 1913 all over again, Tesla's recent price cuts are close to unprecedented in the automotive in automotive history since the early days of mass vehicle production when Ford launched the Model T. Henry Ford introduced the moving assembly line in Highland Park, Michigan in 1913, revolutionizing auto manufacturing. Subsequent deflation transformed the competitive landscape and drove out much of the industry's players at the time. Now that's really interesting because if you think about it, who are some of the competitors that are not profitable on EV? Ford is not profitable on 2020 uh, on EVs, probably won't be until 26. GM probably not profitable on EVs. They're not showing us the numbers. Toyota is not even trying, not even trying right now, although they will in the future. BYD is barely profitable uh, on, on EV, and they're probably only profitable because they're doing hybrids. Lucid and Rivian are basically a, a joke in, in reference to profitability. I mean, they're spending money hand over fist just to get people to buy their cars. And Lordstown Motors, I mean, we don't even need to talk about them. They've produced like 32 cars, and they just pause production because they can't figure it out. I think Ford's actually still under pause because of their... their um, production issues as well. Uh, but anyway, look at this comparison they're making of the Model T production line compared to gigapresses over here. Uh, it's uh, you know quite, quite impressive. We think the investment community may be underestimating the obsolescence curves underlying much of today's EV and battery technology and production. It is very possible that Tesla's March 1st Investor Day may have greater significance on the market's perception and ultimately valuation for Tesla's EV competitors than for Tesla itself. In other words, maybe Tesla stock doesn't move much, but maybe, just maybe, what happens? The other companies start trending more towards bankruptcy because they realize they're not even close to what Tesla's doing. And that just makes it easier for Tesla to compete. For Tesla to become a massive man, uh, mass market manufacturer, introducing lower price points is necessary to have a meaningful impact on the carbon footprint. However, for this to be possible, Tesla will need to successfully lower the average price of their offerings, ideally also cut margin or cut cost to leading to you know sustained margins basically, but this is their suggestion. We uh, or with a stated target of a competitive offering at $25,000, Tesla will have to make significant progress on their costs of good per vehicle. A redesigned interior of the model 3, Project Highland, and the subsequent learnings could be a step in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, this aligns with the math that we were just pointing out, right? Totally aligns. 
And this is where I, I have long-term had the belief that Tesla is actually going to be relatively recession-proof. Now, I know that sounds like a joke because obviously Tesla has done horribly over the last year, but I think a lot of that is driven not by Tesla's performance or their valuation. Sure, in part, maybe there's some there given that growth has moved from about 50% to like 38%, right? I think most of Tesla's poor performance was actually due to Elon Musk selling. And some people laugh at me when I say that, but then I don't think they know the data. That remember, Elon Musk sold about $24 billion of Tesla stock last year. How much in billions did retail hodl, like buy and hodl last year? 15 billion. That means if retail just hodled and bought, and that's net, right? 15, 50% more. So like if you bought $10,000 of Tesla last year and you and everyone else bought another 5,000, so 50% more, you would have just broken even what Elon sold, okay? He milked, like, pardon my French here, cover the children's ears, he milked the shit out of us. <laughs> okay, uh, but anyway, uh, Tesla's Model 2. Okay, so this is potentially the idea that maybe the Model 2 will be what leads to these margins, or will it just be a refined Model 3? Who knows? What does Morgan Stanley say? Reuters reported in, in November that the aim of Project Highland is to significantly ramp the Model 3 components and interior. Remember the numbers that I just showed you were based off the Model 3. You could actually turn the Model 3 into the Model 2 pricing of a $25,000 vehicle. Like, you don't actually have to announce a new cheaper car. Even though there's some speculation of that, uh, I kind of, I've been convinced by what Brett Whitnett over at ARK Invest says, and the convincing he gives is that, you know what? You do not need a cheap vehicle in the American market because people won't buy it. People want a car for that odd time they're going to go a long distance. They don't want a smaller car. Now, there is this suggestion that what about that design of a smaller car that Tesla teased when they announced their, uh, their Shanghai expansions? We'll take a look at, uh, let's see here. Uh-oh. Hold on, I wanna share the screen, but I broke something. Uh, Tesla basically a, a teased this smaller form factor Tesla in sort of a mock-up design. There it is, it's on screen right now. Tesla has previously teased this smaller car, but maybe Tesla doesn't actually need that. Maybe they just need to make the Model 3 so much less expensive to build, they've got the $25,000 car in the bag. Alternatively, there's also this idea that a smaller like Model 2 gets announced in China only. So for like the Chinese and Indian market where smaller vehicles are actually normal, they're not heavily, they're not super normal out here. Uh, so that's possible. Continuing more with Morgan Stanley here, images of the Model 3 with a, a covered front and rear end have sparked further debate about whether the exterior would also see changes, why it matters, well, obviously because of margin. And then they say here, ultimately we believe if Tesla is to successfully fulfill the goal of having a $25,000 model, there will need to be further improvements related to the Gigapress, and battery manufacturing. Now look, battery manufacturing is great. I mean, the 4680s are phenomenal, right? We saw that on battery day. I do have my speculation though about how great the 4680s really are. Now I know that sounds kind of blasphemous as potentially like a Tesla bull, but uh, it, it, you know, we could jump in over here and just sort of draw this out. But I, I wanna ask you this for a moment, and this is just me being super jaded, okay, super, super jaded, but watch this jade, okay? And I, I think it's mind-blowing jade, okay? I'm gonna draw a very bad drawing of a battery. And let's call this, have you ever heard of a C cell battery? Of course you have. 
They're the big fat round ones, right? And then have you ever heard of a D cell battery, which is bigger, like you put it in your Nerf guns and stuff, right? Okay, like I, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but the D cell is obviously 25% larger, you use like 25% fewer cells, it's got more energy, right? The 4680, in my opinion, might be cheaper to manufacture and, and create like cost benefits of maybe 15 to 25%, but is it possible that some of the excitement around the 4680, and again, I'm tinfoil hat, I'm not an engineer here, and I know they're going tabless design, maybe it'll be cheaper to manufacture, okay, we can get rid of cobalt and stuff on but is it possible that a lot of the excitement around the 4680 is, is just because it's a larger cell, right? I mean, I mean think about it. When, when they pitch on battery day, uh, hey, look, it's it's got more energy or whatever. Well, yeah, it's a larger cell than the prior battery. So like, for example, let me show you this, this screenshot over here. If I show you this screenshot from Investor Day and then I hide myself, they're showing a larger cell that has five times the energy, 16% more range, 6% or six times more power. I'm like, yeah, it's a bigger cell. <laughs> you know, like, I'm sorry, a little tinfoily hat there. Don't get me wrong. I do think there will be some cost improvements, but I think the better battery is really just about better margin for Tesla, which obviously as a Tesla investor, I'm a fan of, but I, you know, I, I, I don't get as excited about the 4680 as, as other people do. Sorry, I just, I just, just tinfoil hat in here a little bit, you know, anyway. Uh, so, I mean, like eventually, you know, I was talking to people about this yesterday uh, as we were looking at real estate and one person's like, you know, maybe they'll just have one battery cell in the future. And then we're all joking, like this battery's a thousand X more powerful than the 4680 because they use about a thousand 4680 cells per car. And it's like, well, if it's all one cell, it's a thousand X more powerful. It's like, you didn't really engineer anything other than a larger battery cell, right? Again, I I'm not trying to tinfoil hat. I just think some of what we saw on battery day <laughs> was kind of clickbait, <laughs> uh, I hate to say it. But anyway, so uh, announcing the introduction for the, the gigapress of the Model Y at Battery Day in 2020. Okay, now we got five gigapresses. Obviously, there'll be the gigapress for, for the Cybertruck. Okay, these are things that could help us reducing uh, uh, components, right? Going from 80 pieces to one of the rear floor, going from 90 to 100 pieces to one. Uh, other structural components, whatever. Like all of these unibody castings, big deal. Uh, and so look at, holy smokes. Wait, what is this? Our forecast has the global Tesla O car park. Okay, 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 yeah. Uh, our, so basically, they Morgan Stanley actually thinks that Tesla's going to get to 33 million vehicles on the road by 2030, and they think that Tesla's going to deliver 7.2 million vehicles by 2030. Okay, uh, yeah, I think ARK Invest is at like 20 million vehicles, and I'm at 4 million for 2025. Interesting, okay. Uh, they think, we expect 2.6 of that, so about a third of that, to be the Model 3 or a future compact vehicle. I think any future compact vehicle will end up just being in China. Okay, fine. Front end uh, gigapress is now available, 4680s running off the line, fine. Lets you change sort of the structural battery pack. That's another benefit, right? Obviously, structural battery pack helps. Gigapress has multiple advantages. Okay, I mean, this gets a little, like, now they're just trying to get a little bit, you know, detailed here, showing you how they're going from, look, lots of parts to one part, 
Ooh, lots of parts to one part. I mean, we've all seen this kind of stuff before. Uh, this is quite interesting, though. They've got, they're, they're, you know, this whole um, presentation sort of reiterating the structural uh, information that we learned on Battery Day. Like, hey, look, you know, planes put their fuel in the wing, so why not put our batteries as part of the structural elements of the car? So that way uh, we, we have maybe a stronger car that is more simply designed to increase margins. So in other words, what they're really suggesting, Morgan Stanley here is saying, hey, um, we're just going to give you an update on all of these advancements that we've made in manufacturing to get uh, margins up. That's Morgan Stanley's take here. But I did promise Steve that I would talk a little bit about commodities. So let's just touch on commodities a little bit for the lulls. So uh, sorry, Steve, but lithium prices are plummeting. Lithium prices, uh, even though production has remained stable, Apparently, in China, you've got a substantial decline in EV demand, which is potentially a red flag for Tesla, unless Tesla is the one holding up demand and other EV demand is slowing, although that's unlikely. That's kind of like the Goldilocks hope. Apparently, the China reopening has not really supported much of a floor in lithium prices, and lithium prices are down 30% in China and uh, recently here, and demand is down 52% for lithium in China, and uh, lithium prices in America are down about 10%. Now, that's quite interesting and uh, maybe uh, actually really good for Tesla margins as well. And who knows, maybe we'll hear about that as well uh, on uh, Investor Day. But what do we have over here? Goldman Sachs talks about this being the first leg, potentially of many, lower uh, for uh, EV uh, pricing on uh, pricing pressures on lithium. Lithium now dropping to a 12-month low, broadly unchanged production, leading to a rise in inventories. And a bigger correction here than expected for lithium pricing. Obviously, some other commodities are still moving. But uh, apparently, here's some charts. Weak battery supply chain activity has halved lithium demand in China. CATL's actually been reducing their prices, trying to become more competitive. CATL is a Chinese battery manufacturer. Tesla actually buys a lot of batteries from CATL. And they're actually reducing their pricing. Uh, very interesting. Why would Tesla consider buying a lithium miner if prices are going to come down and stay down? Damn. Checkmate. Steve's back at it again. Damn it. That's it. Cancel the deal. Don't buy the mine anymore. <laughs> that wasn't nice, Steve. I was supposed to be right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, look, I mean, commodities are very volatile. Uh, but obviously, if commodity price pressures can come down and Tesla can buy cheaper uh, batteries from CATL, lithium prices come down, that's phenomenal, right? That ultimately helps because it, on the way up, they've been hurting margins more than I expected. I, I didn't think lithium would, I know that's a big deal, but I didn't think it would hurt as much as it has uh, for Tesla, but but it has been. So uh, now we got Mohammed Alarian saying the market's starting to doubt whether the Fed will ever get to 2%. I'm so exhausted at all this talk about the January reports over and over again, but We'll see what happens as the day evolves and then obviously uh, in, in, in the next season here. But anyway, that's my thought on, uh, yeah, okay, so there's a question about whether this this drop in lithium is seasonal. This is this weakness is greater uh, and this correction is greater than what would be expected for a seasonal uh, adjustment. That's talked about as well in the Goldman piece. Uh, and uh, uh, they talk about uh, basically... Uh, they go into so much more detail. Honestly, I don't really want to go into it. But but yes, that, that is talked about. Uh, and they suggest that this is worse than typical. Uh, okay, so uh, that gives us a little bit of coverage on Tesla. 
So uh, now let's talk. Uh, let's let's take a quick check of the markets and see how the drama is unfolding. Okay. So quick look here. Uh, I mean, you've you've found some stability on QQQ, which is interesting. You've clearly had the movement down. Some stability now being noticed. I'm curious to see how the market moves uh, throughout the day. Let's just do a quick pre-market check here, just as a reactionary. Beyond Meat up 12%. That's a good joke. What is this, April Fool's Day? Carvana down 13%. That's appropriate. Open Door down 9%. That's appropriate. Oh, darn. Autodesk down 6%. Not surprising because of potentially leading architectural demand, but that's a little disappointing. Uh, Cloudflare. Oh, you got a lot of the services down all of a sudden. Cloudflare down 3.6%. Remember, Cloudflare killed it after earnings, but I think they're starting to give some of that up again. Yeah, look at that. You get earnings, you get like all this excitement about SaaS for a hot minute, and, and now it's just downtrend again. Although the broader market has kind of been rotating down a little bit too. So, uh, you know, uh, Uncle Jesse wants, uh, has a message for you, Steve. St uh, uh, Uncle Jesse says, go fondle your rocks, Steve. <coughs> ah, I have no comment. Uh, new batteries are getting better uh, at gathering and discharging energy. The tablet's design distributes energy efficiently through the stored media. Less heat. Thanks, Aaron, for spending $5 to contribute to the conversation. Appreciate that. It's a good one. I don't know what any of that means, but it sounds fantastic. <laughs> Obviously, I understand some of it, but I know enough about engineering to know that I don't know enough about engineering. <laughs> uh, I'm not an engineer. It's just the way it works. I, I talk to engineers. That's what I like doing. But anyway, let's uh, let's see what we got. We got more to cover here. Oh, yes. We certainly do have more to cover here. All right. Oh, God. We have a lot to cover, but we're not going to make it all. Oh, well. Let's cover this next piece. And uh, give me like 10 seconds here. All right. Well, we got to talk about Russia and Ukraine because remember that big peace deal we were expecting to get announced by Beijing? Oh man, the peace deal is here. Are we going to see peace between Ukraine and Russia? Let's look at the multiple different parts of the peace deal suggested by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the People's Republic of China. But first, we before we go into that, it's very important to remember China is potentially considering delivering lethal weapons to Russia, something they haven't done. Previously, they've only been delivering parts for things like radar and jammers and planes and jets. Massive supply chain shortages, by the way, in jets and aerospace, maybe because of the war, maybe because it's just an industry that all of a sudden saw a lot more demand during COVID than ever before. Like, let me put it this way. You don't want to own a plane right now. <laughs> like, it's very expensive to do so. But anyway... Uh, China is also now considering ramping from just those, you know, sorts of supplies to Russia, but ramping to potentially lethal weapons going to Russia, which would be seen as an escalation of the war. Iran is already doing so, supplying lethal weapons to Russia, including potentially building a, uh, a suicide drone facility about 600 miles outside of Moscow. That's not great. That gives them, uh, that creates a less risk that those sort of weapons are seized in transit. A lot of weapons that flow, for example, from Iran to Yemen uh, to support the Houthi rebels uh, end up getting seized by the United States. And now the United States, in counter to UN uh, uh, sort of uh, standards, 
is potentially considering taking those seized weapons and providing them to Ukraine, which is not what you're supposed to do. Uh, that would be against traditional war conventions, but they're, they're, they're suggesting that, well, Russia is breaking war, it's, it's a mess. But anyway, China is like, hey, you know, look, we want peace because even though Russia is only like the 20th largest economy in the world, we, you like, they're, a, they're an important trading partner to us. And we don't want our big ally to be destroyed after this, economically, whatever, militarily, super weakened, whatever. We also don't want nuclear war because as uh, the letter that we reviewed uh, just a couple days ago, Xi Jinping makes it very, very clear that his focus is on growing China's economy. And he's kind of, I mean, if I gave you a bottom line of what Xi Jinping has to say in his massive uh, sort of speech to the country, which is on, briefly on screen here, Xi Jinping is basically talking out of both sides of his mouth going, we love capitalism, but don't worry, we still love socialism, but boy, capitalism is great. It's, it's kind of like they, 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 they touched, you know, the white powder to see what it is, and they took like a little taste of it, and they're like, we, we need more of that, uh, but don't worry, we are not addicts. <laughs> That's a little bit what it feels like. So, so what is this peace deal uh, that China is now proposing to Ukraine and with Russia. Well, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the People's Republic of China has the following to say. They say that we should respect the sovereignty of all countries and there should be an equal and uniform application of international law. Okay, that's fantastic for a peace deal, right? But what about the annexed territories? Who's my, whose land is that? Because if you don't address the annexed territories and you know, like if you're not saying should Russia give those annexed territories back, uh, and, and basically let Ukraine keep those and essentially un-annex them and then take the egg in face as Russia being able to, well, ba Russia basically having to go back to their people going, um, we need to un-annex the places we annexed. That just looks like crap, right? So without China actually addressing that, this starts off a little loony because you've got to address Crimea, you've got to address Donetsk, and then you've got to address Luhansk. This is very important. Without that, you're basically saying, hey, let's have a ceasefire and we'll just leave the Russian troops in these territories because Russia owns it now, right? No no addressing at all of the annexed territory. So that kind of makes this letter worthless, but let's see what else they say. We have to abandon Cold War mentality. Okay, this is basically where they're saying, well, I'll just read this moment. The security of a region should not be achieved by strengthening or expanding military blocks. So basically they're saying, hey, stop invading each other. Stop NATO expansion. Uh, you know, can't we just all be friends and not have NATO expand? Damn it, China. So far, y'all not doing so great with your uh, peace. Like, this this is your big one-year anniversary peace deal. I mean, like, it's. I, I guess we could call it a good effort, uh, like, at doing something. Because it doesn't seem like anybody else is doing anything in terms of trying to negotiate peace. But I don't think this is really going anywhere. Russia and Ukraine should work in the same direction to resume direct dialogue. Okay, that's good. They should. And if China can bring them to the table, hats off to you, China. So I actually think at least they're making an effort. It's kind of like a half-ass effort, if you ask me, but at least they're making an effort. Resolving the humanitarian crisis. Well, duh. Everybody should agree with that. And I love, <clears throat> I do love that they say this. Russia, you, basically, you need to stop attacking civilians or basically bombing, like, elementary schools and apartment buildings because that's effed up. That's fair. Like, not only is that fair, like, that just, like, brings tears to my eyes because it, that is effed up. But, but what it is, it's, 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 so there are two types of warfare. 
there's battle warfare and then there's total war. No, and I'm not talking about like the video game Rome Total War. Total War and Battle Warfare are very different. Battle Warfare is essentially like when you march to the front lines with your flutes and your drums and, and you fight each other and then, okay, whoever wins more battles ends up winning the war, right? Obviously, we don't have flutes and drums anymore on the battlefield that I'm aware of, uh, but, but generally Battle Warfare is how modern wars are thought to be fought. Uh, and the idea there is that we don't want to, like, loot and pillage innocent people's homes and their, you know, elementary schools and stuff because that's effed up. Russia is unfortunately still taking the total warfare, warfare approach, which is a very sort of, like, Viking mentality of let's just bomb the crap out of everything. Energy infrastructure, churches, schools, apartment buildings, because all the people are st who are still here are supporting the war effort in some way. So we're gonna take a total warfare approach to try to win the war and just like demoralize Ukraine. It's not great, right? Total warfare is, is the worst form of warfare. Uh, and and it's, it's very sad for, for the people who, for whatever reason, haven't left or couldn't leave, whatever. Obviously, because they're probably dead. Well, some of them. Anyway, anyway, okay, then, then, so China, fair point here, but I think we can all agree on that. Keeping nuclear power plants safe. They're basically saying stop attacking Ukraine's energy infrastructure, especially where the nukes are, man. Like, we don't want nukes at war, and we need to reduce the strategic risks. Like, why, why, Russia, why are you loading nuclear weapons for strategic deployment onto your warfare ships? Like, this is how we start World War III. Please put your nukes back in the silo. Nuke in silo, not on ship. That's basically what they're saying here. Facilitate grain export exports. Look, we got the rice, you got the bread. Please let the bread keep flowing. <laughs> uh, stopping unilateral sanctions. This is basically like, okay, now, in order for us to have peace and to stop pissing Russia off because they got nukes, United States, stop expanding NATO, and please stop sanctioning Russia. And while you're at it, please stop uh, with the tariffs on China. Then, hey, let's work together to keep supply chains stable. And let us have all of your technology while you're at it, United States. It's reading between the lines a little bit here. And then, uh, hey, uh, when we rebuild Ukraine, um, let's all work together. And this is basically China saying... Since we've kind of overspent on like rebuilding real estate in China, and now we have ghost cities, but we want to increase our ability to sell goods and services because after all, capitalism is great since we, mm, we had a little bit of a taste. Let's now suggest that when it's time to rebuild Ukraine, we want to join. In other words, China's kind of like, hey, um, we'll be there to help rebuild because that'll help our GDP too. Now, Jake Sullivan and the United States have so far brushed this letter off as worthless. NATO Secretary General has brushed this off as saying China doesn't have much credibility. You also have NBA players who have been interviewed about this, Russia and uh, China involvement. And NBA players are basically scared to talk bad about China because guess where a lot of their products are manufactured? Oopsie doopsies in China. Yes, some are manufactured in other Asian countries, but also in China. So you kind of have a lot of people who are like, we don't want to say such terrible things about China because we can rely on China for money. Uh, then you also have like apparently these now uh, higher definition uh, uh, pictures of the uh, uh, weather balloon. And they're kind of interesting, 
regard of you know from China because these are like up close from I think I don't know if they're from C130s or or where they uh, where they took these HD pictures but they they really show a spy balloon that's a lot um, a lot more than like a weather balloon uh, I'm trying to find a picture here uh, that's convenient for me to pull up but basically it looks like a giant satellite hanging from a balloon and that kind of I don't know, that kind of makes you a little bit more sussed out about the idea that, yeah, this is just a weather balloon. Although I will say I'm a little suspicious as to why the United States hasn't released more information about what the actual components were on the quote-unquote weather or spy balloon. Here we go. Here's a picture on Twitter. Thank you very much. Look at this. This is a picture of a close flyby of the balloon. Yeah, you can take a screenshot of it if you want. I, you know, Steal whatever you want from me. It's fine. I, I still love you. I don't know, man. That looks like one hell of a... That <laughs> uh, basically looks like a low-flying satellite, right? You get your solar power, and then you got lots of equipment. Wish we had a little bit more of an up-close shot in terms of what the details of all that were, but, you know, maybe we'll get that one day. Anyway, so there you have the update on China. Uh, yeah. Now, thank you, by the way, for the donations here. $10, $1. Thank you. I appreciate y'all. $2. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thanks, China. Your massive one-year anniversary peace deal is a giant nothing burger. But, hey, at least China's trying. Oh, it was from a U2 spy plane? What, like they were playing U2 music while on a plane? Sounds good enough for me. All right, thanks so much for being here. I've got to run to the course member live stream. Appreciate y'all. Uh, play some U2 for me as well, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Good luck, everyone. Goodbye.